Here at the beginning of the fall, we're going to begin a series of messages that will go for eight weeks. We're going to lean into a core teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to spend one week each on each one of his Beatitudes. I believe that if we will take each of these Beatitudes and reflect on them and think about them and embrace them and welcome them into our hearts and lives, that God will give us a fresh and hope-filled word for the world we live in. In 30 years of speaking and teaching and reflecting and reading the Scriptures and the Sermon on the Mount, I have spent a lot of time in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and what amazes me is how alive the words and the teachings of Jesus are here and how relevant they are to our life. And the reason I've chosen this fall to speak again on the Beatitudes is because God is speaking to me in some very fresh ways about what it means for me to follow Jesus. What does it mean for our church to embrace the way of Jesus and a message of hope for the world we're living in? When I look around the world, it appears to me that we are experiencing a great poverty of spirit. This teaching is so relevant because we appear to be so poor in spirit, evidenced by a lack of hope, a lack of courage, a lack of peace, and what appears to me to be an appalling lack of empathy for the poor, for the displaced, and for those in our world who have nothing to lift themselves up with. This poverty of spirit is addressed directly by Jesus and his teachings because we look at the world and we go, what's the path forward? What can we do? How can we change things? How can we be better? How can we elevate ourselves? And the teachings of Jesus offer us a glimpse of what it is that God wants for the world, and he offers a path forward. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, here is my way. Here is my way forward. And I believe with all my heart, uh, with all that I am, that if we, as Christians... As followers of Jesus, if we will sit at his feet and let him teach us, he will show us the way forward, a way of love and mercy and peace. So the question I have to ask you this morning as we begin is, do you want a teacher? Do you want to be taught? Do we have a teachable spirit? My experience has been, for myself too, and I'm speaking to myself, that sometimes we want a Savior, but we don't want a teacher. We want someone to deliver us, but not to instruct us. We want to be rescued and then to continue to live the same insanity over and over again, but not to be taught a new way. I've been a coach for most of my life. I've coached people spiritually. I've coached cross-country, I have coached people in other forms of life, and one of the things I've discovered is that it's almost impossible to teach someone that doesn't have a teachable spirit. There have been times in my life, my own life, when I've, had, I've not had a teachable spirit. I remember coaching cross-country and working with kids, 
and I would talk to them about how they could get better, and I'd always rather work with a kid with less talent than a kid with a lot of talent who can't be taught, who rolls their eyes and thinks they have it all figured out. You see, a disciple, a disciple of Jesus is a student. It's someone who has made the commitment to walk in his ways and to learn from him a new way of living in the world. And right now, I think our community and our church, that we need a whole lot more students willing to be taught, disciples, than we need to collect more believers. Believing is important. But if we're not willing to be taught, what do we have to offer? So here, so here in this passage, what's happening is that Jesus is teaching. He's going all over Jerusalem, all over northern Galilee, and talking about the kingdom of God. And for Jesus, the kingdom of God was God's plan for a new world. When he spoke about the kingdom of God, he was talking about a here-now reality, saying, this is what I intend the world to be. This is the path forward for this world. And as he began to teach in the local synagogues, people began to bring the sick and the tired, the lame, the blind, and he began to lay hands on them and began to heal them. And large crowds began to follow him. It says they came from Jerusalem and from Galilee and from Syria, and they came from um, the Decapolis. The Decapolis was ten great cities, Greek cities, filled and created by Alexander the Great. To describe the crowd would be, say, have you ever been to the state fair? You see the collection of people, the diversity of people that go to a state fair or to a football game. It was a whole mismatch of people. Poor, wealthy, sick, well, healthy, immoral, moral, religious, non-religious, Jews, Gentiles, servants, slaves, all kinds of people. As I reflect on that, this is what occurs to me. That wherever people lift up Jesus, as John says, people come. Because of the truth that he offers, the way and the path that he offers is appealing for the world. Especially a world poor in spirit. That when we lift him up, people will come. And so as he's preaching, he goes up on the mountainside and he lays down this core teaching, the Beatitudes, the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. And his first, the first way he launches this is by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? Let me tell you who they're not. He's not talking about people who have chosen poverty as a way of life, as a spiritual discipline. He's not talking about that. And it's not a redeeming quality. Sometimes when we speak about blessed are the poor in spirit, we, we spiritualize it to mean blessed are those who have humbled themselves and recognized their need for God and realized how poor in spirit they are that they need God. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying either. That's a virtue. It, it makes the point that, that if I will humble myself, then God will bless me. That's not what Jesus is saying here. When he says the word poor in spirit, it is not a positive phrase or description. Many, many years before Jesus, the Assyrian army came from the north and destroyed the northern part of Israel and took out the best and the brightest. 
Those who were left behind were the hungry and the poor and the sick and the diseased, the spiritual zeros, you might say. And there was a word that they used to describe them, a Hebrew word, anawim, anawim. By the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, the word anawim in Hebrew was a derogatory term that referred to nobodies, the left behind. The worthless. It meant literally the poop on the bottom of your shoe. So when you were called Anawim, you were the poop on the bottom of the shoe. What Jesus is saying here is, Blessed are you when you are looked upon as the poop on the bottom of the shoe, as you are looked upon as the worthless refuge, the nobody, the left behind, the spiritual zero. The Greek word used here in the text is the word patokos. And it means those who are so desperately poor that they are crouched over and bent by the weight of their poverty. Bob Seipel, who at one time was the president of World Vision, told this story about the Ethiopian famine. A woman had walked two days to get a bag of grain for her surviving child. She got the bag of grain from World Vision. And on her way home, uh, on her way out of the camp, she stopped and set the bag down because she was tired. And when she wasn't paying attention, someone stole her bag of grain. Bob said that she began to weep and cry. And he said she wasn't crying for herself, but she was crying for her remaining child that was hungry. Crying for the the husband that had died of disease, and her other children who had died during the famine. That's Patokos. It's to be without hope. It's to give up. It's to feel like you have been abandoned. It's to feel like you've been left behind. It's to be the poop on the bottom, to feel like you're the poop on the bottom of the shoe. Now, if you don't believe me, I will give you a cross-reference that Jesus is talking here about the poor, and it's not a good term. Go read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 20 through 26, where Luke just says it very plainly, Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Blessed are those who cry, woe to those who laugh. Blessed are the hungry, woe to the well-fed. And I like what Matthew does here, because Matthew understands something about poverty. He adds the word spirit. And what he's saying here is that when a person is living in dire, extreme poverty, it does something to the human spirit. It crushes you. Today, as I speak, we have people downtown feeding uh, the homeless, those considered anawim. And if their condition were not difficult enough, the most difficult thing about their condition beside their physical poverty is the spiritual poverty that comes from being unwanted, unloved, and unseen. Wow, if you can understand this, then you understand just how powerful these words from Jesus are. Because the word blessed here is the word makara. It's a word that means, it's, it's, it's basically a divine announcement. It's unconditional. 
It's God saying, I see you. I've heard your pain. The world has said that you are the poop on the bottom of the shoe, but I look at you and I see a child of God. I look at you and I bless you in your deepest place of poverty. And even more than this, he's saying, he's saying, the door that has been closed to you in the world, I am opening to you. I'm saying that I'm announcing the beginning of our ministry here with you, the poor, saying that to you the kingdom belongs. That where you are the poorest of the poor, I have opened a door that I'm going to do my new thing with you. It's so opposite of the world that says, blessed are the wealthy and the rich, theirs is the kingdom. But Jesus is making this radical upside-down claim saying it is with the Patokas. I was really moved uh, yesterday by something that happened at my house. Um, we hosted a meal for the 10 people that are going to Honduras this fall to work with a hospital that we've been supporting for a long time. Jeff and Roseanne McKinney have built a hospital in one of the poorest places in the world where people suffer daily from poverty. And the hospital has provided a place for people living in poverty to give birth to their children in a safe place to, to reduce the infant mortality rate. I want to show you a photograph uh, of a group. Uh, one of their leaders came to our house last night and brought this beautiful banner, and it says, Dios es amor. It means God is love. And that banner was made by a group from our church called Wrapped in Love, which is a quilt-making group. They meet every Monday. And they made this banner to hang in the maternity ward uh, in Loma de Luz. Isn't that so wonderful? And she then showed us this blanket that they're going to give to newborn parents, to newborn moms, with their babies born. And it says, Nostros, su hermanas, in Louisville, Kentucky, Estados Unidos de America, Himos, Aurora, por su pequeño, bibi, su familia. That's my attempt at Spanish. <laughs> but I wanted you to see that it is written in Spanish. But this is what it says in English. We, your sisters in Louisville, Kentucky, United States of America, have prayed for your little baby and your family. We have prayed for your little baby and your family as we created this blanket. We wish you health, happiness, and that you will always feel God's love for you, the women of Wrapped in Love ministry. It really touched me because it says to me what this beatitude is about. When he says, blessed are you in the kingdom of yours, it is saying that God is wrapping his arms around the poor and saying that I am eager to bless. The world has discarded you but I have not forgotten you, and I am wrapping you in my love. Let me speak for a moment about that word bless now. I think sometimes we misuse the word. We don't understand what it means. And I'm not being critical. I just want to offer some, some thoughts about this. But oftentimes I will see people say, well, I'm blessed. We're blessed. And usually it's you know, a Facebook photo of a group of people sitting around a dinner table filled with food and friends and a nice evening, we're blessed, I'm blessed. Or it'll be somebody gets a job promotion and they will say, I am blessed. Or someone goes on a nice vacation to the beach or someplace nice like that with family and surrounded by family, I am 
blessed. Or you have a baby, and the baby's born healthy and happy, and everybody's healthy and happy, and they say, I am blessed. I appreciate the sentiment and the appreciation, but I think it may be the wrong use of the word blessed. Because when I hear that phrase and I see those images and photos, I think, well, what about the person who can't sit at a table and doesn't have the food and the family to surround themselves with? What about the person that works in the Rust Belt who's lost a job and can't find a job and can't get a promotion, even though they're capable and willing? And what about the family who sees I'm blessed with a healthy child, but they themselves are born with a child with difficult medical consequences from birth and then forth. The problem with using bless in that way, it makes it sound like God blesses some and, bless, and does not bless others, that we are favored and they are not. Instead, I think maybe we need to use it differently. We don't need to say blessed. Maybe we should just say fortunate. Or maybe we could say lucky. But I think it's a mistake to take our privilege, our privilege, of the place where we were born, our fortunate, lucky privilege of where we were born and the parents that we were born to, and give it a divine blessing and sanction. I think probably the best word, instead of saying blessed, maybe we ought to use the word responsible. Responsibility. Because everything I read about the teaching of Jesus seems to indicate that those who have much much is expected of. Jesus said that. That's why there's so much teaching about wealthy people in the Scripture and God's call to us to be responsible to the needs of others, to join with God in being a blessing. It occurs to me that the deepest, perhaps, poverty of spirit beyond a physical poverty of Patokos are those who are the wealthy poor. The wealthy poor who have everything but still don't have everything. Who don't recognize our responsibility, who don't recognize our privilege, demonstrated by a lack of empathy for those that God loves and cares for. But here's the beautiful thing, that God is a blesser. That even though we may be in that place of spiritual wealthy poverty, God says the same thing to us, I give you my unconditional blessing. The kingdom is yours. What that means is I've opened a way for you. Here's a whole new way of being in the world. You've been living this way. Now you can live this way. You see, he gives, you see the connection between the two, between the poor and the wealthy? He says to us, here is my way. I am a blesser. I'm opening a new way where you will find your significance in how you serve rather than what you collect or you think that you need. It's powerful. It's, it's a powerful path. It's the way of healing. It's the way to heal our world. It's the plan that God has for our world. And one more group, though. Every week I preach to people poor in spirit. It's not the wealthy poor or those who are physically poor, but it's those who have just been beaten down by life. Those who have lost children or those who fight chronic depression or like the people in Dayton, Ohio, who a few years ago... Uh, you know, the, the, the automobile plant closed down and they were left without jobs. Or, Where's my future going to be? God comes alongside of us. This God does not hold our conditions against us, but sees the conditions in our life as an opportunity to bless us. 
You see, God is not a curser. God is a blesser. And God has been blessing since the beginning of creation when he looked at the world and called it good and said it is good. And he's calling people to embrace his teaching, to live a new kingdom, to live a different way in the world, to live the way of love, compassion, and mercy. To realize that at the place of the world's deepest poverty, God arrives and opens a door to a new way. Will we sit at his feet? Will we embrace his teaching? Because it has the power to change us and to transform us.